This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. During this month, August 2020, the Burn It All Down crew is taking some time off to rest and retool the show. In place of our regular weekly Tuesday episodes, we are bringing you episodes from podcasts hosted by guests of Burn It All Down. We hope you enjoy, and we'll be back soon. And as always, burn on, not out. Hi, Flamethrowers, Brenda here, and this week we are going to feature an episode from the Past Present Podcast, tagged as a podcast where three historians turn hindsight into foresight. It is hosted by three historians, as they say, Nicole Hemmer, Neil J. Young, and Natalia Melman Petrozella, who has been a guest on the show in the past. And in this episode, the team takes on, this was back in May, the death of Ahmed Arbery while he was jogging, the murder, actually. And in it, they delve into everything from the discourse about the murder being a modern-day lynching and what that feels like, what that sounds like to a group of historians that work on lynchings. They get into racialized policing and oppression of African-Americans at the hands of the state, and also the very sport activity pastime that is running. And we did interview Natalia um, for her work in the New York Times on the culture and the racism within the culture of running. She is now, I should mention, hosting a new podcast called Welcome to Your Fantasy. So enjoy this brilliant episode. It's really apropos that I'm introducing this one because it is a group of historians that I admire so much. Support Past Present by becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month. Sign up now at patreon.com slash Podcast. Historians will look back and they'll be able to have a better look at mistakes after some time has passed. History began on July 4th, 1776. Everything before that was a mistake. But I am a pretty strong believer that the, the, the past is behind us and the dead are dead and this is our world to make. Welcome to the Past Present Podcast, where we look at American culture and politics today through the lens of history and turn hindsight into foresight. It's May 8th, 2020. On today's show, Ahmed Arbery, a 25-year-old black man from Georgia, was shot and killed by two white men while out for a jog. Why did it take more than two months and a mass national protest for police to arrest his killers? 
In New York City, I'm Nicole Hemmer, an associate research scholar at Columbia University and author of Messengers of the Right. Also here in New York, Natalia Melman Pedrazella. Natalia, tell us what you do. I'm associate professor of history at the New School and working on a book about American fitness culture. And down in Winter Park, Florida, Neil Young. Neil, what do you do? I'm a contributing writer for the week and the author of We Gather Together, The Religious Right and the Problem of Interfaith Politics. And Natalia, where can't our listeners find you in the coming weeks? Well, sadly, after about a month and a half, we had a great run of Thursday Intense Sati lives. Um, But I have a major stress fracture in my femur, so I'm taking advantage of lockdown to heal it. I will not be teaching, but if you love Intense Sati even more than you love me, other leaders are teaching all week, (laughs) same time, including in my time slot. A great woman is taking over named Liv Bear. So you can still go to that same channel, but I'll catch you on the flip side, hopefully fully recovered. Get better. Yes, we're all sending you healing vibes. Thank you. (laughs) All right, let's head right into our topic. Ahmed Arbery, a former high school football star, went for a run on February 23rd. It was something he did often, but this time his run was noted by several white people in the neighborhood in which he was running. A few called 911 to report a black man in the neighborhood, and two white men, Gregory and Travis McMichael, a father and son, grabbed their guns, got in a pickup truck, chased him down, and shot Arbery to death. The McMichaels said they were engaged in a citizen's arrest when Arbery attacked them. The district attorney did not initially press charges, but earlier this month, video of the shooting was released showing what actually happened. Following intense national outcry, the McMichaels were arrested last night. Neil, some have called Arbery's murder a lynching. Is that the right framework here? Yes and no. I mean, I understand why that's the framework that people reach for when we have, you know, these incidents of vigilante anti-black violence. Um, it's understandable that that's the the kind of framework or the discourse that people call upon to talk about it. But I do worry about, or I have a sort of cautiousness about what it means to employ that language of a modern day lynching. I mean, one of the uh, two big kind of concerns come up for me. One is that I don't think that framework really speaks to or really accounts for the ongoing continuity of vigilante anti-black violence. Um, I think in some ways it almost treats you know, lynching as this thing that happened in a discrete moment of time and then, you know, leap forward a bunch of decades and like we have these isolated events and it doesn't speak to like the ongoing problem of this. And I also just think that in some ways it doesn't really account for the types of violence that are happening now. Um, and I think we have to speak to the the gun violence of this and what that means, you know, as this nation continues to struggle with the gun violence epidemic. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I think some ways like the lynching framework keeps us from really accounting for the actual violence that's being perpetrated now. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And the reason that I also kind of push back a bit on the lynching um, analogy or terminology is similar. It's that, you know, by using what is widely thought of to be a 19th century term, it makes it seem like, oh, my God, this strange and horrific throwback to, you know, the Jim Crow South or something. Whereas, yes, there are definite similarities of the violent murder of an undeserving black man. But still, exactly as you say, Neil, this is about police brutality. This is about safe streets. This is about jogging culture. This is about toxic masculinity. This is about so many things 
things that are not strange throwbacks from the past, but about right now. And I think that lynching doesn't do justice to all of that. So I agree with a lot of what both of you are saying, but actually think that that is the case for calling this lynching. Because lynching in the 19th and 20th century, when it was sort of most concentrated around Black Americans, primarily but not exclusively in the South, we think of it as death with a noose. But it actually encapsulated many more kinds of murder, including people being shot. Um, This kind of extra-legal vigilante violence I think you're absolutely right, Neil. There's a an unbroken line from what we think of as the era of lynching um, through to today of exactly that type of violence. And lynching, I think, as a term helps actually connect that late 19th, early 20th century violence to the murder of um, soldiers coming back from World War II or the um, killing of Emmett Till or the murders during the major part of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and through to today. Um, And I think that the most important thing is that those things are connected and understood as something that has not been relegated to the past, but continues pretty thoroughly through this day. Yes, but I think most people who read that headline or that tweet more likely of the the lynching don't have as nuanced understanding about the historical continuities of what lynching is. And that's why I think it can do a disservice in being Mm -hmm. a catchphrase to describe something that, yeah, substantively, I think you're totally right about, Nikki. Well, so this is what uh, this is something that I often argued when people wanted to throw out the term alt-right and just say white nationalists is I actually think that not only should we use the term, but we actually have an affirmative obligation as historians and journalists to explain exactly what that term means, that it's about continuing to keep a word that has a lot of power um, and is an accurate description, and then letting people know what it actually means. But I also understand that in a Twitter-based economy of knowledge, that is not always the most useful way to approach things. So, Natalia, you surfaced a lot of different things that are going on in the Arbery case. Pick the one that you most want to talk about, and we'll start there. Well, I don't think it's the most important one, but because it's kind of my beat, I would be remiss not to bring up the kind of running culture aspect of this and the fact that um, something that I have often thought about writing this book about fitness culture and kind of existing as a an amateur runner in the world is this big disconnect between the often universalist, almost judgy language of everybody can go running. Why don't you just get up and go for a run? The disconnect between that language and which bodies have sort of access to the public space to do so safely. And I know I've talked on this podcast before about women in particular and street harassment, but something that comes up almost as much throughout history is the, you know, sometimes fatal mistake of running while black, that a black man in particular running through the streets is read uh, by a public who often thinks particularly of runners as white and of black people running as, um, you know, being criminals as a signal that like in this case, 2020 got Arbery killed. And that kind of thing has happened before. And I don't, I think that's really important to remember. And, and there's a, there's a kind of grassroots some um, activism going on on social media right now of runners running 
two, three miles with with Maud, which was his his nickname, and also calling on Runner's World to speak out about this and to kind of push back and, you know, take a stand on white supremacy and running culture. Yeah, I think there's been a real tendency in the history of sort of popular jogging, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of happening in the 1970s and the 1980s, a democratizing language around it. Like, this is something that's accessible to just about anyone. because you All you need are a pair of sneakers, and you can go out and you can jog and be healthy. And I think that this gets at exactly the limits or the blind spots in that language around jogging in a way and I, it's i'm not certainly not the first to tie these two things together in in the same way that the hoodie became a very rich symbol during um the time of Trayvon Martin because it was this piece of clothing that when white people wear it it's just a hoodie and when mm-hmm. black people wear it it's a sign of being a hoodlum or being in a gang or like being up to something shady and that way of taking things that are treated sort of universally through the white lens and showing the inherent racism and how they're viewed is really fascinating. Yeah. And just like one maybe last piece on this running thing and race, in much of the coverage of jogging culture throughout the 80s, particularly in the case, of course, of the Central Park jogger, race is all over that. But it's usually a white jogger who is under threat of being accosted Mm -hmm. by a black man. And you see that even tossed aside in articles about other things. Oh, the jogger who has to dodge homeless men on Skid Row. Like, oh, the you know, and that. And so I think that um, racist history of jogging is something that plays into um, this case that that we see today. And a lot of that was directed at white women joggers, right? The yeah. t- the story mm-hmm, totally. there is thinking about them as, uh, you know, w- running through the world and the sort of precautions they had, uh, you know, that they had to take or that were they were being told that they ought to think about. And I think what has been really upsetting to watch play out in the last, uh, you know, week or so is all the African-American um, joggers who have come forward and talked about on Twitter, especially all the precautions that they take every single time they exercise and, you know, the time of day they run and like Arbery was jogging on a Sunday afternoon, you know, we should note. Um, but lots of people are saying like, they think about the time of day they run, they think about the neighborhoods they run through, they think about what they wear when they're running. And one woman said she always puts on her Harvard sweatshirt because that's a sort of kind of armor of protection or it sends a sort of message about who she is and what she's doing. All those sort of thoughts that, you know, it really just strikes me when you're saying, Nikki and Natalia, about the the history of running and the public message behind it was, as you said, you know, you just need a pair of shoes and to go outside. And that's not the case at all, um, as we're hearing from mm-hmm. so many African-American runners. Um, and I think, you know, that conversation has been extended in the last couple of days to, you know, basically every realm of public life. And and when you look back at the long list of African-Americans who have been killed in the last couple of years and people saying, okay, it's for carrying a cell phone. It's for, you know, trying to buy cigarettes. It's from crossing a street. It's from walking through a public park that there's no realm of public space. There's no aspect of public living in which anti-black violence doesn't happen. This is all the work I have to do to exist in the world. And it's exhausting. 
Yeah, there's a great article that we will link to by um, sociologist Rashawn Ray, who has studied this in a very systematic way, the way that black men kind of have to self-present when going out in the street. And he writes specifically about in the case of running. I think you're right, um, Neil. I, too, have been so happy that this is being amplified um, because there has been, like, whenever I talk about this in sort of like academic or niche settings, even there, there's often a kind of like, oh, really? Like, hadn't thought about that. And certainly in... In, um, in kind of dominant mainstream commercialized running culture, there was a moment a few years ago after uh, Ferguson happened where I had like a small piece of citizen activism around this, where in the window of Equinox, there was a t-shirt, an expensive t-shirt that says, run like you stole something. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, who in the world would have the kind of, you know, like, hubris or tone deafness to wear something like that. And they ended up taking it down. But I say that not to, you know, I say that to just emphasize how, how like how tone deaf you can be to put that in a window, right? Mm-hmm. And sell it. Yeah. Um, and we should say Jelani Cobb um, on Twitter, and I hope he's working on a piece for The New Yorker about this, um, has been tweeting about his own experiences as a runner and why he doesn't run at night and really digging into some of the the nuances of this issue. The other thing that I have been thinking a lot about, and this also ties back to Trayvon Martin, is this kind of long history of vigilantism and the ways in which it is celebrated and codified. I mean, you certainly have like the history of vigilantism in the 19th century, um, particularly in the American West, which is presented as this very American kind of thing that when you're outside of the long arm of the law, that people have to take justice into their own hands. This is often against indigenous people. um, But that sort of celebrated history gets in the 20th century turned into things like Neighborhood Watch, which came up in the Trayvon Martin case because George Zimmerman saw himself as somebody who was protecting the neighborhood and that idea of protecting the neighborhood and all the many ways that that idea gets reworked has been one of the justifications used for anti-Black violence. And I think it's particularly important in this case because George McMichael had been a, a law enforcement officer and was protected by the police in his town until this became a national story. And many members of the district's attorney's office had to step aside because they had longstanding relations with him. And that kind of white power structure that is in particular embedded in law enforcement is a really important part of this story. Yes, but I think what's also really telling in you know a series of district attorneys recusing themselves from the case um, in, in, in this Georgia town was that you know they didn't merely recuse themselves from the from the case they put out public statements essentially exonerating him um, based on their reading of stand your ground law and I think we have to bring that into this conversation about vigilantism because you're right like in thinking about how um, an American white power legal system has codified elements of vigilantism through several centuries and yet I think it has almost turbocharged that tradition through these recent stand your ground laws that are in particular states here in Florida. You know, Trayvon Martin was shot down not very far from where I sit right here in central Florida um, and also in Georgia where Arbery uh, was killed. And so the stand your ground law is striking to me. If you think about the American legal tradition as 
I mean, I think, you know, the criminal justice system has predicated itself, uh, if, if it hasn't often acted this way, and certainly has made arguments about, you know, legal systems are in place to reduce violence and to, to be a sort of uh, drag on people's violent impulses. And the stand your ground law does the opposite. It puts violence into the hands of citizens and basically trusts them to to do as they will and then provides them with uh, what we see as an almost unending escape clause for that violence if, if it's you know perpetrated by white men usually. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that the, the kind of facilitation of violence that stand your ground laws allow. Yeah. And then also, I think if you look at the kind of Anglo-American history of these laws and the fact that precisely precisely the opposite type of sensibility used to prevail, that there was that the 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 law dictated you had to retreat, like essentially unless you were in your own home um, and you then could act in self-defense, like you couldn't act in self-defense and have that be defensible. And then as you have the kind of rise of individual rights and to protect yourself as being a kind of higher value than protecting human life more broadly, you get the kind of intellectual foundation of um, this kind of, I think, kind of twisted individualism. Right. The ability to flip or blur the lines between defender and aggressor has been such an important part of how this sort of wiggle room for white people shooting black people has worked. And this is true not only in these cases of vigilantism, but also for the police themselves, right? That the police who have um, a right to violence from the state, who are heavily armed, who are Mm -hmm. heavily protected, can say they are in fear of their lives. And that then gives them the right basically to shoot whoever they want. I mean, I think that that idea that there is a reasonable fear inherent in any sort of interaction with a black person is a real problem, but it's the basis of a lot of uh, these acquittals. Yeah. And lest I have sounded too um, universalist myself in talking about individual rights, I think it's important as you push back, Nikki, on saying, yeah, like who has the right to these self-defense laws in terms of them creating an opportunity or a loophole for which white people can retaliate, sometimes fatally against um, black people, I also can't help but think about domestic violence um, in Mm -hmm. these situations where you have those women who go to jail for murdering their husband, even though they've like beaten them within an inch of their lives for their entire life, right? And so it really is a kind of sleight of hand to say this is about self-defense and sort of individual liberties writ large. It's a pretty narrow swath of who is seen as credible for acting in self-defense and being legally defended when they do so. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about is this tragedy actually happened near the end of February. So I think before we were, you know, really in our pandemic moment, Um, yet obviously the attention has been drawn in in recent weeks. And I do think I've just been thinking about how there's this narrative out there that I think has gained a lot of traction, which is like in this moment of lockdown and pandemic, there's these silver linings, which are things like, you know, the earth is able to restore itself because there's not as much pollution and school shootings are down because no one's at school. Like there's, there has been this break, this disruption and kind of the worst elements of human existence. And I'm just hearing that conversation a lot. And yet, here we have an example where actually we know that through the pandemic, um, the data shows us that police shootings of 
unarmed black individuals has not abated, um, that it's remained fairly consistent. And so I think it's important for us to think about, you know, we've been talking about historical continuities throughout this conversation, and it seems really important to think about the continuity of this own moment and what is being disrupted and what hasn't been. I think that's really important because there has been a conversation about the way that the pandemic has really affected black people and people of color much more than it has white people, just in terms of health outcomes, the people who are dying versus the people who aren't dying. And then you have alongside that a conversation here in New York City about the fact that it's black people who are being stopped for social distancing violations. It's black people who are being told to put masks on, that there's much more police interaction with people of color than there is with white people. And so those disparities that black owned businesses are much more like not to get PPP loans. And one of the things that this has been so striking is that there is, again, like this optimistic narrative that, you know, nothing matters anymore. We're all in this together. And you look at it and you're like, actually, this has been done a really good job of exposing how structural racism is structural, right? Like everything else has been overturned. And yet here the structures of racism are continuing to assert themselves and perhaps even assert themselves even more strongly in this moment of crisis. Yeah. See also last week's episode on meatpacking <laughs> and Latino workers, right? Um, yeah. I have, Every time I see like in it together, hashtag whatever, I'm like, nice idea, but are you serious about yourself right now? Because I think, if anything, we've just highlighted um, disparities that continue to persist. And this whole idea of a pause, like pausing is a real privilege, right? Not to have to go to work, like to feel like you can take a break from real life. I mean, yeah. So yes, I co-sign that sentiment. All right. Well, we should leave it there. Listeners, if you have thoughts on the murder of Ahmad Arbery, come chat with us about it on Facebook at facebook.com slash pod or over on Twitter at PastPresentPod. Now onto our closing segment, What's Making History? Natalia, what is making history for you this week? What's making history for me this week is the announcement of J. Crew declaring Chapter 11 bankruptcy. I know, Nikki's pouting I'm over so there. so sad. I'm sad too, though short-term thinker, uh, taking advantage of those sales, I suppose, if we ever have a place <laughs> to wear anything again. Um, and the reason that it's making history for me is on the one hand, this is part of a broader kind of retail meltdown, Neiman Marcus, Pier One, Models, like a lot of stores obviously are taking a huge hit in the pandemic, and um, particularly ones with a lot of uh, brick and mortar locations really um, are feeling the squeeze. And so I think we're going to see a really change retail environment, particularly because even if they could power through this time, it's hard to imagine how brick and mortar will look anything like it did when we get back, trying on clothes, packing it in and malls, etc. But J. Crew, I think, is special among all of these because I'm not alone based on informal Twitter research and, and other conversations and having dare I say, a little bit of like a pull of my heartstrings when I found this, because I think J. Crew to a certain kind of mall-going kid who grew up in the 1990s really emblematized like a whole kind of wannabe, preppy, fancy um, lifestyle that I recall feeling like very, very strongly as someone who didn't feel too pretty, certainly didn't feel pretty and preppy. And I remember those rugby shirts. It was the first clothing 
clothing that was in my re- that in my reach sort of I saved up for them that felt kind of fancy and aspirational and it was funny I I had been tweeting about this and someone last night um sent me a screenshot that Dawson's Creek which was a show of that era the whole staff the whole cast was outfitted by J Crew huh. and so it, it yeah it really was kind of part of that moment now I say all of this and some of our listeners hopefully have a broader life experience than myself or maybe rolling their eyes it reminds me about yeah this fragmentation of our consumer and emotional experiences it reminds me of Kate Spade when there was like this total you know outpouring of emotion when different circumstance Kate Spade the designer um, committed suicide but it a lot of people were like oh fancy handbags like you know what a privilege to be kind of broken up about that but I think it does kind of speak to a particular segment of um, aspirational mall fashion in America that uh, certainly part of my experience so I hope J crew gets bailed out I bet you it probably will in some other form but until then hit those sales people <laughs> <laughs> I did in fact hit those sales and also have that same like strong memory with J crew of it being aspirational and one of those things that I it felt like I had like achieved something and being able to go there and buy clothes, even though they were still probably outside of my price range. Um, but I'm also struck by, you, you may remember in 2009 or 2010, Michelle Obama went on a, a talk mm-hmm. show and she wore J. Crew. And the whole point was to be like, look at her wearing accessible fashion. And I was like, accessible fashion? We are coming at this from two very different um, uh, pocketbooks. Yeah, it's still like an $80 cardigan, right? I mean, that's not accessible to a lot right. of people, yeah. right? I mean, it's, I, I appreciate your your very specific caveat of, of the, the particular segment that this represents. Because in some ways, I think we might be saying more about ourselves than we're saying about J. Crew, or uh, maybe that's one and the same. But, you you know, it's funny. I, I think I probably started wearing J. Crew in college, but I really associate it with like my first professional life of like mm-hmm. moving to the city and buying that um, young professional look from them, like the pants and the button up and, and also like the weekend clothes. But I, I just really associate it with those kind of first years of living in New York and being able to buy them, especially when they were on sale on Markdown, um, that they were like you said, just kind of just within reach, um, but that they also represented a sort of early adult moment of my mm-hmm. life of kind of of stepping into a different aesthetic, not a different aesthetic. I mean, it wasn't all that different than what I grew up wearing all along. I've, I've kind of conformed to a pretty preppy uniform throughout uh, my life. It just has varied where I've gotten it from. But um, when it comes to the buying thing, like I made the mistake of clicking on J Crew that first week of the of lockdown and, you know, putting a couple things in my basket because it was everything was marked down so much and just thought like it would be really nice to like buy all this clothes and just feel good about something for a moment and then realizing like maybe now is not the time I need to acquire new clothing when I've been wearing the same outfit for the last four days. <laughs> but because of the wonders of the internet, now I'm getting like eight emails a day from them because I think once you like open up that that shopping cart it like triggers an algorithm that makes them reach out to you time and time again so um all this is to say there's clearly lots of deals to be had so um maybe that's maybe that's the takeaway i think we need a sponsorship while they still have ad dollars to <laughs> give. yeah let's just bottom out that advertising budget now <laughs> neil what's making history for you this week 
Well, I'm going to return to the content endorsing game, or at least a content sharing game. I'm not sure this is an endorsement, um, but I've just started a new Netflix series called Hollywood. Um, this is the latest from Ryan Murphy. Uh, it's a seven-part series. I'm only about three episodes in. Uh, it's set in post-World War II, like late 1940s Hollywood, and it's a, a historical look in the sense that a lot of the characters are real-life figures, including Rock Hudson and George Cukor and Anna Mae Wong, and then also obviously a cast of fictional characters to round out this world. And it really has foregrounded the history of Hollywood in terms of sexuality and race in a way that I think is really interesting. And timely um i think there's you know there, he's he's really digging into a lot of this history um that i think you know historians of hollywood know but probably not the average american Th those aren't the things they think about when they think about the rise of hollywood and, and the birth of this industry um but a lot of it is about closeted gay figures who who made and built um, hollywood and and the struggles they had over their sexuality and also similarly non-white um, actors and workers in the, in the movie industry and what it meant to not be white um, in these years. And so I think that's been really interesting to watch in the, the handful of episodes I've, I've seen. I did a little bit of reading just to see what the kind of think pieces on this series were um, with hoping I wasn't like spoiling the rest of the show for myself. And I was disappointed to learn that the response has been quite critical um, mm. because apparently it kind of starts to become more fantasy than history and that there are some storylines that develop that are, I guess, progressive or hopeful or optimistic in a way that paint this kind of... Um, fairy tale ending, I guess you could say, on this chapter in history that is actually not how these stories played out at all. So I find that disappointing to know that that's what I'm moving into in some of the later episodes. But I still kind of think it's worth watching. Um, but if you do watch it, maybe make sure to go read some of these really good think pieces um, that are talking about how uh, this is not, in the end, all that historically accurate, even as it taps into a lot of history. I mean, it's historically accurate for the arc of any Ryan Murphy show. It feels well, that's like. true. Yeah. <laughs> I have a hard time with the like fast and loose with historical accuracy, but feels history-ish because as someone who like you guys consumes so much history content, so many memoirs, so many books, it's very hard to like, like I don't need more distraction from what's real to like be like, where did I learn that? Is that real or not? So I think I'm going to sit that one out, Neil. All right, I might dip my toes into it because I'm always looking for more mm -hmm. content during the pandemic. It's beautifully made. I mean, it's worth it to see the sets and the costuming and all that stuff. But again, you know, pinch your nose or at least go read a good historical takedown of it when, when you're done. I do love a good historical takedown. All right, what is making history for me this week is... I think a really touching story um, about the Choctaw Nation and the Irish. It's a story about how during the potato famine in Ireland, the Choctaw Nation sent $170 to starving Irish families. Um, this was about $5,000 in today's money, and it came on the heels of the Trail of Tears. So at this point in time, when people of the Choctaw Nation had been through an extremely traumatic event, but they had heard this story story of what was happening in Ireland. We were at the very, very beginning of 
sort of global media in which these kinds of stories were being circulated. Um, And in hearing about the plight of the Irish people, the Choctaw Nation took their resources and sent this money to Ireland. It comes back around about 170 years later because just recently, hundreds of Irish people raised money for the Navajo Nation and the Hopi Reservation, um, a fundraiser that has raised more than $1.8 million um, to help make sure that there's clean water, food um, during this time of pandemic, and so trying to reach out and support and reemphasizing these historical ties that, you know, I it was it's a story that I didn't know about, but that Irish people know about, right? That it's um, the story that is still told in Ireland, and that kind of connection um, has persisted over more than a century, and that idea of connection, of struggling people reaching out to help one another in time of crisis. It just, I don't know, it was one of those stories that as I read it, I was like, there are good people in the world. Humanity is maybe not going to be okay, but like parts of it are going to be okay. Um, And that's just sort of show of solidarity um, and reference back to history was really moving. So uh, there's a really great piece about it in the New York Times if you want to check it out. It's called Irish Return in Old Favor, Helping Native Americans Battling the Virus. That is fascinating. I mean, that is very heartwarming to hear. I'm struck that this is a story that Americans don't know. And it's interesting to think about, you know, American history being known in other countries or the sorts of histories that other countries might know of, of each other um, and what, what that says. Yeah, totally. And it's so weird. I feel like we're in this moment of like a lot of Irish culture making it into media. I just started watching Normal People the other day. Before that, I started listening to West Cork. I mean, we might be in a kind of Irish golden age. I really like Kerrygold butter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I want to return to what Neil said about American history, right? That these are stories that are known within the Choctaw Nation, right? Mm -hmm. um, but aren't the stories that are told in, you know, a history textbook is going to give a couple of paragraphs to the Trail of Tears, um, but it's not going to give, you know, this story. And so it was really lovely to see this story surface. And I don't know, it was... I keep saying lovely, but I just feel so, I feel so heartwarmed. More happy news. This is what we should focus on. That's our new podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I think John Krasinski might get mad at us for for intruding on his beat. True, true. All right. Well, that will do it for this episode of Past Present. Thank you, Natalia. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. You can help us out by heading right over to iTunes to subscribe and leave a rating, which helps other people find us. When you subscribe, new episodes of Past Present will download right to your listening devices every Tuesday. You can also become a patron of Past Present through Patreon at patreon.com slash pastpresentpodcast. Head on over to pastpresentpodcast.com to find show notes and sign up for our newsletter. Share all your favorite historical photos on Instagram with us by tagging pastpresentpod. And come continue the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com slash pastpresentpod. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, also at pastpresentpod. You can tweet with each of us individually. Neil is at Neil J. Young 17. Natalia is at Natalia Petrosella. That's Natalia P-E-T-R-C-E-L-A. And you can follow me at Past Punditry. And with that, this show is history. See you next week. And I saw-